Well, welcome. Good to, good to see you all here this morning. My name is Dave. I'm the lead pastor here, and I'm really glad that you're here this morning. Um, as you can see, again, we're at the end of spring break now, and I uh, want to just remind us and encourage us, I'll say each week, but if you're going to be um, coming throughout the summer, A, we're really, really excited about that. Um, this will be a great chance for us to, we have some things even in store, some um, ways for us to move toward one another, to grow as community, and also encourage you to uh, move toward um, kind of up front and, and, and um, um, in. But uh, anyway, it's just great to see you here. I, I uh, didn't, didn't say this yet, but um, if you're new or you've never heard me preach, I have a stutter. It always happens when I uh, say the word, just as an example. But um, anyway, so it'll kind of come in and out, but just want to make sure that you all know what that is so you're not trying to figure that out uh, the whole time. Um, also, I just want to um, say something I haven't said in quite some time, but um, we do have a children's ministry, Redemption Kids. It's a great place. It's a fun, safe environment for kids, and they learn um, it's similar to what we're going through here in the sermon, and you can talk about that with your kids. Um, as I say that, though, we also want to always emphasize that this is a really, um, we love kids. Um, we entrust that, 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 that um, the primary disciplers or primary teachers for kids are their own parents. And so we encourage you to use your own discretion. Your kids are more than welcome to be in here during the, uh, the service with you. Um, some of you may have remembered a, maybe a couple months ago, I had actually a kid was up here for, it seemed like a while, but like with playing with some trucks and things right up here in the front and then eventually uh, one of the older siblings came and got her, but um, that's totally okay. So um, if you're a, a nursing mom or you have young kids or kids of any age and you want to bring them in and be involved in the service, we um, welcome that. So anyway, just want to say that because on that note, um, Easter Sunday, I don't know if Jared said this specifically, but we're going to have the kids be in here with us. The kids are going to help us sing a song and they're going to be involved throughout the whole um, service. And so That'll be fun. Um, also, for some of you who love kind of dropping your kids off, and um, just a, a, a maybe a, a heads up that uh, they'll be with you, but uh, you won't be alone. My daughter Zoe will lead the way in that, I, I'm sure. But anyway, um, I just want to let you all know about that. So we have a, a fun um, time to get, uh, together. I'm excited for this. I say fun in a challenging kind of way. Um, so we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. I want to invite you to go ahead and turn with me there. Um, it's on page 543 of the Bibles that we're going to be handing out. So if you don't have a Bible with you, I want to encourage you to be able to look along and underline stuff and all that. So um, go ahead and hold your hand up high if you do not have a Bible with you and you need one, you want to be able to follow along. And also, let me say, if you don't own a Bible, um, you do now. This is our gift to you. We want everybody to have one. Even if you don't plan on reading it today, you can put it on the shelf and have it there for whenever you might want to go back and look at it. So we believe that this is God's word and we submit ourselves to it. And what we've been doing here, we've been walking through the gospel according to Mark. And this is the gospel account. This is um, uh, an actual human, a guy, Mark, um, who interacted with Jesus. And he was kind of the disciple or the student of um, a guy named Peter, Simon Peter, who was one of Jesus' primary disciples or 
followers, and he basically gave the whole account of Jesus' life and um, told it to Mark, and then Mark wrote this down, and he's been writing with incredible purpose and intentionality. It's not just like a play-by-play, he's not just walking around with a camcorder every little event of Jesus' life, but there's a purpose, and it's expressed from the very beginning. If you have your Bible, you can look the very first verse, it says, um, the beginning of the good news, the word, um, the word gospel means good news, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God the Son, so that's a bold proclamation, this is Jesus, he's God the Son, and then throughout, as we've read along, we see Jesus's ministry, it's not just um, where we hear about it, but the author intentionally displays it to us. And he wants us to see the good character and the authority of Jesus. And it calls for a response. Just who is Jesus and how do you respond to him? We're, we're challenged with that every week as we come before his word. And um, the author, Mark, I just want to share a little bit more um, kind of as we go who this guy Mark was. If, if you remember, some of you have actually asked me about this. One of the main words he loves to use, it's used over 40 times, is immediately. There's a sense of urgency that Mark wants to remind the audience that Jesus was on a mission and that Jesus was calling people to respond to him with a sense of immediacy and that his kingdom came in such a way that it demanded people to to take notice and to respond instantly to him. And and, and Mark calls you and I to to respond with, with urgency and with intentionality and um. This guy, Mark, too, just so you know, he believed this so much that history tells us that he planted churches throughout, um, throughout Africa. In fact, he was likely one of the first followers of Jesus to carry the gospel to the, the, the continent of Africa. And he actually lost his life. He, he was a martyr for his faith. And so he believes these things and, and he's calling you and me to, to lean in and to open our ears and our, and our hearts and our eyes to respond to Jesus and his authority. Because the original audience, like you and me, um, are prone to say, well, um, I'm going to decide who Jesus is and kind of how I want him to fit into my life. But, but the author shows us that's not really um, an, an, an option. That, that Jesus is the king and that the kingdom is his kingdom. And the platform for that kingdom is the world that you and I live in and our very lives as his subjects, as his followers. And so um, he calls us to come to him on his terms, according to who he is. And so with that, um, I, I want to pray that God will, will enable us to hear and to, and to lean in and to listen and to rightly respond to Jesus, the King. Okay, so, so with that, let's, let's pray, and then we'll pick up in Mark chapter 2, verse 13. Again, Lord, we thank you for this time that we have to gather together. Um, thank you for this season. Thank you for uh, the spring, and things are starting to bloom, and, and flowers, obviously. We don't love the allergies that often come along with that, but um, uh, thank you for medicine to help us with that, and um, Lord, thank you for March Madness. It's a, a f- fun time. Um, that's all I'll say about it. But it's a good time for us to, to join together as community, to watch um, games together, to live life 
as we say all of life is all for Jesus and we get to do that alongside one another. Um, Now as we read your word, I, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will prepare us to rightly respond to Jesus. I pray you will convict us of ways that we um, misunderstand ourselves and misunderstand other people and then in turn misunderstand you. Lord, will you shape us individually and corporately as your people? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, just pick up with me. We're going to dive right in. Um, Mark chapter 2, verse 13. And just as we do, I'm going to go along and then explain some stuff. And we're going to learn some things as we go. And with that, beginning in verse 13. He, he is Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. So, just kind of a reminder of where we're at here. Jesus is in the northern part of um, Israel, and he's in the area of Capernaum, and he's along the sea. This is the same place where he called his first four followers to follow him, a group of Ishermen, Jesus said, leave your nets, leave your family, come and follow me. And they did. And, 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 and people would recognize he's still there. He's still up in the sea area. Because um, this would be like someone who maybe was in, say, Scottsdale or somewhere else in, in, the, in the U.S. And then they heard that the king showed up. And the king is in kind of working class, you know, Tucson. He, he's out there, he's hanging out, or, or, or Yuma, or you know, wherever else that you might think like, that we might be prone to. Why, why are they there? I heard the, the, the president came and spent all his time in, you know, Casa Grande. Like, why? Why is he there? And that, that had that effect here, that the people are hearing that Jesus, the King, God the Son, who's bringing his kingdom, is hanging out with a bunch of blue-collar People and he's calling them to follow him. And as he's been doing all along, he's teaching them. He's proclaiming who he is and what it means to follow him. And he's calling people to follow him. And um, initially, some people would hear that and be like, a bunch of blue-collar, kind of working-class fishermen in this kind of so-so town in the north. Why is he there? But I guess, whatever. And right, and most of us, no matter where we're from, have some respect for kind of blue-collar, you know, construction worker, maybe, you know, swinging a hammer, earning an honest living, right? Even if maybe we don't live alongside such people, you know, day in and day out, that, um, th- there's still a sense of respect there. But, but then um, the next verse, though, the author kind of ratchets things up. Because he identifies a group of people that nobody liked. And he talks about Jesus moving toward some pretty despicable people. And let me ask you, before we read that, before we pick up in verse 14, who do you not like? Right? We joke about ASU. I joke about ASU. Um, We joke about other sports teams, right? We have kind of friendly banter. And for most of us, hopefully that's not, you know, too honest or too heartfelt. Like there isn't a hatred there. But there are usually types of people that if we're honest with ourselves, we're like, I I really don't want to live alongside those kind of people. And then maybe it ratchets up a bit and we think, Okay, those type of people, surely they don't get to go to heaven. Surely they don't get to be a part of the kingdom. Like, you know, we hear about some radical religious fanatics who are doing things, or we hear about 
different types of people in the world and whatever it might be. And um, if you're wondering who that is, just think about what kind of Facebook posts or Instagram pictures or articles you're more likely to like. Like, yeah, can I love this? You're right, and it's and it's normally an inflammatory explanation of some other group of people. Um, who is it? Who is it for you? Who don't you like? And, and, and let's be honest with ourselves. For most of us, there are those kinds of people. And yet Jesus exposes the, the kind of scandalous nature of his kingdom. He's up in the north. He's with blue-collar people. And now, pick up with me in verse 14. And as he passed by, he passed by the sea, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting by the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So we might read that and be like, okay, so he walks by, you know, uh, um, some kind of a, a CPA, a tax, you know, the guy with the dresses, the statue of Hebride was out there waving a sign, and Jesus was like, okay, I need to get my taxes done. And that's kind of what we think of, a tax collector, um, a tax booth, that is, couldn't be further from the, the truth here. Maybe... Um, think of like the IRS or an IRS collector. And, and maybe that's getting closer, but even still, we don't really have something in our day that really exposes who these tax collectors were. We actually have a, a little diagram I, I want to show you um, of, of the map of, of Israel. Um, and, and you'll see it in a moment. But um, you see there, there it, um, it's broken into different sections. And in short, you can look at the key there, but there are basically different parts that Rome at this time ruled over the entire um, nation. They were, they were subjects. They had been colonized by the Roman Empire, and, and, and the people, especially religious people, especially the people of God, hated this. This went against everything they had grown to know of God and His character, um, that they were under pagan, godless rule. They hated the Romans, and then ratcheting, ratcheting it up even more, there were um, ethnically Jewish people who had been um, kind of become the puppets to the Roman Empire, and they ruled. And there is the uh, the the Herodian kingdom, and it was the sons of Herod the Great who ruled over different parts. And what happened is. As you would travel from one place to another, you had to cross, and there were usually um, you know, certain ways you had to go. And so you would cross a border, and you had to pay a toll or a tax. And it was a reminder that you were not free as the people of God, that you were not free in your own life. To go as you would and to, and, to, and to interact with whom you would interact. And to, it is that you are under rule. And then even more than that, the people collecting those taxes were your fellow countrymen. People that were supposed to get it. People that were supposed to be alongside you. Um, recognizing this is not the way it's supposed to be. But instead, what these people would do is they would use you and your difficult situation for their own good and their own benefit. So these were ethnically Jewish people who were, um, in, for all intents and purposes, no longer Jewish. In fact, extra-biblical language like the, the Mishnah or the Talmud, some books that, that in, instructed Jewish people on how to live, talked about tax collectors as 
despicable people. They, 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 they spoke about them in the same way as thieves or murderers. In fact, tax collectors were not allowed into the synagogue or the places of worship because they were unclean. Um, if you've ever heard of or read the book Night by uh, Ellie Wassell or, or, or uh, Eli Wassell, depending on your pronunciation, but he wrote this incredible book called Night, and it's, it takes place in a, in a Roman, um, or in a, sorry, in a Nazi concentration camp. And the Jewish people obviously are being murdered and killed and experiencing terrible life there. And, and, and yet the, the, the primary villain in these concentration camps is not just the Nazi soldiers and the prison guards. They were hated. But, but kind of um, public enemy number one are referred to as moles. It was fellow Jewish prisoners who had been singled out by the Nazi guards and been told, we'll spare your life. We'll give you some extra, some extra food. We'll, we'll kind of make life as good as it can be here if you exploit and tell on and abuse your fellow prisoners, your fellow Jewish people. And this was people who used others to advance their own position. That, that, that would strike home. And hear me, that's what comes to mind when Jesus goes up to one of these people and says, you, follow me. He's a tax collector. He is abusing his own people for his own good. He's an outsider. And we saw, if you remember, just last week, we saw that Jesus moved toward the physically unclean, right? He touched a leper, and the leper was cleansed. In this case, we see the scandal of Jesus as he moves toward the morally unclean. He, he calls someone who is so despicable to follow him. And he says, follow me. And that language is not just believe in me. Okay, some of us here put your trust in Jesus. And we think, yeah, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I have, a, I have an intellectual ascent. I, I think he's, no, but, 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 but faith the, the faith that Jesus is calling for this man to follow him means come after me and change your life in response to who I am. Come after me. Repent. And this is scandalous. And yet Jesus' authority compels this guy to respond. What does he do? Does he argue with him? No, no I've got some other stuff going on. No, it says he rose and followed him. He rose and followed him. And then what happens? This um, ratchets up a bit more. Jesus doesn't just call this one isolated sinner, this, this hated tax collector, you over there, come follow me. And then the guy's like, well, you are Jesus. All right, I guess I will. And he gets up and follows him. And then Jesus goes on in his you know, religious life, his good evangelical Christian life that you and I would be really comfortable with. And then he follows him. No, what happens in the next place? Well, that guy has some friends. And it says in verse 15, And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So it's not enough that Jesus just calls one tax collector to leave his tax booth and come and follow him. But now Jesus is associating with these people. Now, I'm not going to give you a little demonstration, but the language used is that um, 
He, he is reclining at the table. It's actually in that day, the way they ate together, picture, um, again, I'm not going to do this, but picture being kind of sprawled out on your stomach, like held up by your, you know, your elbows or your forearms, maybe laying on a pillow with like a glass in your hand, kind of circled around. That's what Jesus is doing with these people. He is demonstrating that he is associating with these people. Maybe our equivalent is that he's kind of reclined back. Maybe he's got his feet up on the table. He's eating with them and drinking with them. He's, he's drinking alcohol. It's not grape juice. It's not, it, he is, he is, um, he's, he's, he's exposed to the world as he's hanging out with the most morally unclean, despicable people. And yet, um, let me ask you, how, how do you feel about what other people think, think of you? I'll admit, for me, I am somewhat of an approval monger, if you will. That's kind of my, 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 my disposition. One of my deeper sins is I really care what other people think about me. And so for a lot of us in the Christian church and evangelical Christianity, we are so consumed by that, we're so driven by that, that who we associate and what other people think about us defines how we live and who we associate and what we do. And, and the thought of Jesus being with, again, go back to the most despicable people, the people you really don't want to associate with, the sexually immoral, the whatever it is, you, you know, we will picture that in Jesus is reclining at the table with them. This has enormous implications. Okay, this is not Jesus being worried, like, oh, what are they going to think? Are they going to... Okay, he's not drunk. Jesus doesn't get drunk. We're told drunkenness is a sin, and Jesus was without sin, but he's still interacting with people where he could be misunderstood. And he's there, he's reclining with them at the table, he's drinking alcohol, and these people come up and other religious authorities see and they're irate. And we'll get to that in a minute. But Jesus isn't so worried about that. He's building his kingdom according to his terms. And, and let me say something else too. Because I think a lot of us, whether it's thinking about ourselves or thinking about others. We have a whole list of things to clean your act up, to get your life in order. And then you follow Jesus. Then you're welcome at church. But that's not what we see in Jesus. He displays grace. He moves toward these people. He eats with them before he calls them to repent. Before he says, stop what you're doing Stop this tax collecting and then come and follow me. Get your life in order. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus or perhaps you are a follower of Jesus and your understanding of how others can become Christians too involves cleaning up your act first and then coming and being a good Christian and then following Jesus, there is nothing in the Bible that supports that view. Instead, Jesus says, come as you are and follow me. He displays grace. And I don't want to assume that we all know what grace is, okay? Because we hear that, we hear the word grace, and we become inoculated to it. We become immune to it. Grace is God's undeserved favor shown to those who deserve the exact opposite. These people deserve God's judgment. 
They deserve for Jesus to call them out, to call them pigs for what they're doing, to, 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 to really come down on them. But he extends grace through his actions, through his, through his, he moves toward them, and he reclines at the table, and he associates with them. And this is scandalous. And it's a picture of what Jesus calls us to. He's eating a meal with them. Meals are enormous in, uh, throughout the entire Bible. The relationship between God and his people and amongst his people often involves sharing a meal together. Jared talked about redemption communities. We meet throughout the week and we gather together. We eat together. We break bread together. And what do we do every Sunday here together? We break bread together. This, is a, this story being told is a foreshadowing of who is invited to the table of God. We break bread and we remember that Jesus gave his body for broken people. And then we dip that in the juice and we remember that Jesus gave his blood to cover the morally unclean, the sick amongst us. We do that week in and week out. And yet somehow... We distance that from who we're to associate with, from who Jesus would come to call to be a part of his kingdom. And now let me also say, because I think we need to be wise here, hear me on this, okay? If you're a recovering alcoholic, this does not mean go hang out at the bars, you know, put your elbow on the bar and you really have a heart for other alcoholics and you're just going to go hang out at the bars to, you know, help them come to know Jesus. Okay, there's, a, there's a, a difference between protecting your image and being so consumed with what other people think of you that you never interact with the morally unclean amongst us. There's a huge difference between that and being wise. So let me just say, when I played rugby and my wife was in different honoraries on campus, um, they partied together. And if we were going to associate with the people that we, you know, lived amongst, that we practiced with and, you know, did things alongside, if we were going to interact with those people, it, it necessarily involved, for the most part, us going to these parties. But we would usually go together. We would bring other friends along. We had boundaries for me Personally, alcohol wasn't really a huge stumbling block, like a bunch of guys drinking Natty Light and, you know, getting just throwing up. That wasn't really attractive to me, so it wasn't very difficult to not enter in to that. But a couple times, it'd be like, yeah, now we're going to all go to the strip club. Well, I'm not about to be like, well, for the name of Jesus, let's go. I'm going to go associate with you, and let's go to the strip club. Right? I knew my own limits, my own boundaries, and said, no, I'm going to be here alongside you. We're going to be at these parties together, but I'm not going to go do that. And, and I had others to come alongside us. And that's just another example of Jesus' call, not just to us as individuals to follow him, to put our trust in him, but he's forming a people. Jesus is here reclining at the table with his followers, with his people, and he's, he's moving toward others who need to understand his grace. And yet his grace is still scandalous. Pick up with me. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors 
and sinners. They were mad. These Pharisees, um, I think rightly, were confused. They're like, wait, 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 Jesus, you're eating with these despicable people. You're, you're hanging out with them. What are you doing? And Notice, though, they go to his disciples. They don't go straight to him. But we tend to have, um, to kind of look down our nose, right, at the Pharisees. We hear scribes and Pharisees, those guys looked at Jesus this way. They didn't get it, but we do. Let me just be honest, okay? Look at me. Most of us are a lot more like the Pharisees than we want to admit. Okay, the the Pharisees were a group of people who um, believed and understood God's promises to restore what had been broken, and they structured their lives to live in such a way that they would be rightly set up to take part in God's promises. Is that a, a bad thing? No, that's you and me. We believe God. We believe in His promises. We gather together to remind one another. We structure our lives in such a way to be set up to partake in the promises, the good promises of God. But, like you and me, they are um, vulnerable to forgetting God's grace. They're vulnerable to forgetting God's authority. And so like you and me, they want to fit Jesus into the way they think he ought to be. They want to say, I'm conservative. I vote in this way. I structure my life in this way. So surely Jesus and everyone he associates with needs to fit into my paradigm. But Jesus was a little too liberal to fit into their camp. He hung out with these despicable people. He um, hung out with the extremely liberal and frivolous of their day. And yet, these guys, they want to be like, yeah, see, Jesus isn't conservative. He's hanging out with us. He's getting crazy. He's drinking. He's, he's hanging out with the, with the liberals. He's over here. He's on the left. And then um, Jesus is like, but in other places, um, I believe in absolute truth. Uh, there is a place called hell, and I'm going to talk to you about it. And people actually go there. And he makes claims on their lives. And he doesn't believe that all roads lead to the same place. And he calls people authoritatively to follow him. To stop doing what they're doing. And so they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're getting a little conservative on us. And Jesus blows up their categories. And guys, he needs to blow up our categories. Because the, the message that we are getting week in and week out is that Jesus is the king. That he has come to bring his kingdom and his, the scope of his kingdom is much bigger than you and I are likely comfortable with. And so the Pharisees are confused and they're mad because they thought that Jesus ought to call people in such a way that played according to their rules. And does he call people to repent? Yes. We've seen it already. He's preaching, repent and believe. What does repentance mean? It means stop what you're doing. Stop living the way you're living and turn and follow me. But, hear me on this. Repentance is always preceded and informed by grace. By grace. By undeserved favor. The big theological term, which I'll share right now with you, is irresistible grace. And what that simply means is that Jesus presents himself in all his glory and reveals himself 
to sinners, to tax collectors, to the morally unclean, to the people who don't have their ducks in a row, who don't just need a little bit of Jesus to get over the hump, but are completely helpless, he reveals himself, and then once you rightly see Jesus, you can do no other but to turn and follow him, to answer his call, to respond to his grace in trust and in faith. Repentance is always preceded and informed by grace. And what does Jesus say as he moves on and he tells these Pharisees? It says this in verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We might read that and think, see, Jesus is saying, I didn't come for you, I only came for these people. But what he's saying is, you think you're righteous, and if that were the case, I wouldn't have needed to come. Places like Romans remind us there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What Jesus is telling them is, you are sick. These tax collectors are sick, and guess what? They know it. You are sick, and you don't know it. The worst place to be is to think you've got it all together and to miss the call of God's grace to follow Jesus, to repent and believe. It's like, it's like driving along on the freeway and thinking you've got a gas tank full of gas, and you're just going along, and you're driving right past every gas station and your, your gas, what do they call it, gas meter is broken and you think, oh, I'm good, I'm cool. And there's signs, free gas. <laughs> nah, I'm good. You're just going along and then all of a sudden your car dies. You're stuck. And your desperate state becomes so real. That's what this needs to have an effect on you and me. Yes, there is absolute truth. Yes, there is sin. Jesus is a king and his anarchy is, or his kingdom is not defined by anarchy. It's not like, ah, just free grace. It doesn't mean anything. Just believe what you want to believe and, you know, whatever. No, Jesus does have rules. He does call for people to follow him. But it's always defined by recognizing your need for him. And that's what grace is. So Jesus calls the sick, the morally unclean, the physically unclean, the leper, the tax collector, to follow him. He calls the Pharisee and the scribe, the religious elite amongst us, those who have never done anything wrong, who have gone to every church camp since we were born and who have done everything and gone to every Sunday service and done all the right things and read all the right books and have the right translation of the Bible and done all the right things. But still, that's defined by religion. Re religion in the negative sense means my relationship with God is defined by what I do and what I bring to the table. And in essence, what it's saying is God's um, action toward me is based on his indebtedness toward me by how I live and what I do and how good I am. But faith is defined by seeing and recognizing the undeserved favor of God displayed in the life, 
death and resurrection of Jesus and saying, I am sick and I need to be made right. I need to be healed. And Jesus is the only way that can happen. So as we close, um, I I, want to spend more time today talking to us, okay? Being honest amongst ourselves. First, on a personal level, how do you respond to this? How do you respond to Jesus? Are you like the tax collector? Are you someone who's thinking, you have no idea. Dave, pastor, you have no idea what kind of life I've lived. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what kind of baggage I bring in here. Um, well, is it different from some of the people in Scripture who are murderers? Who um, were slave owners? Wherever you are, you don't clean your act up and then come to Jesus. No, you see and respond to the good character and the authoritative call of Jesus. Are you a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and you think God's grace is the starting point? Oh yeah, thank God for amazing grace. When we sing the song Amazing Grace... Thank God that His grace enabled me to become a Christian, but now, ten years down the road, I'm slugging it out. I'm exhausted. And I'm trying to fill the gaps. I'm trying to make God happy. I'm trying not to do these the bad things. I'm trying to do the good things, but I'm just getting exhausted. As one author says, the gospel, the good news of God's grace, is not the ABCs of the Christian faith. It's the A to Z. It's not the starting point, it's the whole point. It's the foundation. It's the driving force for every second of our lives. And now, what does this mean for us communally, as a church? Okay, we're Redemption Church. We're Redemption Tucson. If you are a member or you're a regular attender and you're becoming a part of the church and this is your church, let me speak honestly to us together. How do we respond to this? Who do we associate ourselves with? We say we exist for Jesus' glory and the good of Tucson. There are a lot of tax collectors around us, all over Tucson. There are a lot of people that we probably don't vote alike. That we probably don't spend our Friday and Saturday nights alike. There are a lot of people that are maybe inviting us to enter in, to recline at the table alongside them and It's not going to be really comfortable. But how are we called to respond? Are we we called to recognize our own status as tax collectors and follow Jesus and then respond to his call where he says, you come and follow me and become ambassadors. Tell others about my grace. Go to other tax collectors and remind them of who I am and what I've called them into. Of the light. In a nutshell, this is how we're called to live. You and me, we as Redemption Tucson, are just a bunch of beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. Now, what does it look like for us to live our lives in that way? Let's pray. Lord, again, um, thank you for your word. Thank you for convicting and yet edifying truth. Thank you for harsh and yet helpful reminders, Lord Jesus, that, um, that you are good, 
that you are authoritative, that you are indeed right now calling us to follow you. Like with Levi, Matthew, the author of the first gospel, you um, called him to leave his life of tax collecting and to follow you. you. You call us to leave our lives of sin and to follow you. And yet you don't say to do that first. And then we can be called your own. No, instead you call us to respond to your revealed grace, to your goodness. Lord, I pray for all of us in here that we will simultaneously be convicted and encouraged. Lord, I pray that we will sing songs in response to you, that they will be songs of confession and songs of worship. Lord Jesus, would we be defined by living lives of repentance, confessing our sin, and also lives of worship and lives where we are compelled to tell others of your scandalous and your good grace. Lord, we believe that your kingdom is real and that your kingdom is coming and your kingdom is already here. Lord, we call that you would lead us and show us what it means to live life together as your disciples in your kingdom. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.